you've got your Bibles, and if you don't, there's a couple on that back table right there. Um, today we're going to be in James 4, so continuing right along, and then uh, next week will be James 5, and it'll be the last in this in this book. So if you have your Bibles, <clears throat> turn with me to James 4. Verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. All right. Praise be to God. James chapter 4. So, a little bit of a recap. A life of faith has no room for worldly passions. And last week we learned about the, the two different kinds of wisdom. We have the divine wisdom and the worldly wisdom. And so these worldly passions, just to give an overview, they, they inflame strife. They inflame infighting and that sort of thing. And they indicate a disloyalty to God. So what's the answer? We're going to get into it, but the answer is to live in humility before God. And if we do, we'll receive grace, which we all need. And then, so God is teaching us through this book, the book of James, that faith works, right? Or as I said last week, we'll do what we truly believe. Like what we really believe will come out. And here's the reminder again um, that I think I gave last week. But we're not saved by these works, only Christ saves us, but the works come out of the faith that we have in Christ. His works on the cross is what saves us, but our faith in him and his salvation will, will help us to naturally put aside these worldly desires and these worldly actions, and we will serve him faithfully over time. And living out this faith, that we will naturally, like, it will change us. It will change the way we act, and it will change what people see when they look at us and they, when they look at what we say and what we do. Um, this turns over time. We will draw closer and closer to Christ in a relationship, and we will start to obey his commandments. 
In John 14, 21, he says, Whoever has my commandments and keep them, and keeps them, he is it who loves me. It is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. This is the words of, of Jesus. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so as we're going through James, we're learning that's a result of our faith in Christ. Um, so it sounds, sounds almost impossible, right? Well, it's because it is. Like we can't do this on our own. It's, but it's not hopeless. We are saved by faith in Christ. It's not just this mysterious word faith, right? We're not, it's, it's used in commonly in culture. Oh, he's a, like he has faith. He's a guy of faith. It's faith, 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 faith. Well, it's faith in Christ, the God of the universe who came down to get us. Um, so we are saved by faith in Christ. We're both the saving and the faith are gifts of God to us. We're also sanctified by faith. And sanctification is a process of being made holy over time. Outside of faith in Christ and the work in his cross, there's, there's just no way that's possible. There's no hope outside of Jesus. <clears throat> so we don't have it in us to be good enough to be at peace with God. We don't have it in us to be good enough to enter his presence after we die. It's only by faith in Jesus. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So you got to even, if you don't believe it's not possible, it's not going to be possible. Take heart in the fact that if you find yourself living in a manner that's not, as we go through this, the book of James, that's not fully in alignment, right? This, he's putting some some high standards, some high a high bar, but <clears throat> all is not lost. Sanctification, which is what we talked about earlier, the process of being becoming more like God over time, it takes a lifetime. It will literally take you until the day you die, and after you die, you'll be fully sanctified, like Jesus. So I've been asking myself this question. It's it's the natural question that comes up. So if I see, okay, so I'm reading about taming the tongue, and I'm reading reading about, you know, impartiality. If I see these things, or that thing in me, or this thing in me, like, what does that mean? Like, what, I, if I'm a thinking person, I have to go, I have to wrestle with this. Like, what does that say about me? I Like, I'm, I was impartial, or I am, you know, lost control of my, my mouth, and I said some things. And so if you're a thinking person, you'll ask yourself those questions. Um... Does that mean I have dead faith? Does that mean my faith is is toast, right? And the answer is possibly, but probably not. If you're a believer, the answer is probably not. Even if your faith were to be dead, Jesus raises things to life. That's what he does. He is the life giver. He has the power over life and death, including the life and death of your faith, praise God. So if you desire to be right with the Lord and you want to work on these things, then your faith still lives. So take take heart in that. It's good news. The scriptures teach us that there's varying degrees of faith. Um, Jesus talks about faith being small as a mustard seed. He's not talking about a physical size like it's something physical. But he's saying even with just a little bit of faith, and he compares it to a mustard seed, which is a, a small seed apparently, I only know mustard in a bottle, but apparently there's seeds of mustard. Um, So he says, well, that's a small faith. And then um, Paul makes reference to weak faith and strong faith. Uh, In addition, James here in this book, 
is speaking to believers. He's speaking to people that he keeps calling the brothers, right? Hey, brothers. It's, it's a term of endearment. It's people that are in the faith. It's people that believe. And they're in the faith by definition. If they're outside the faith, if they had no faith at all, if they weren't saved, then what, there would be no point in writing this letter to, to random people. They wouldn't be able to get it. They wouldn't have any interest or ability in understanding it or even taking it in. And so if there was no hope, if there was, he wouldn't write such things. This book would not be written. Um, it's a practical way for us to check our faith. As I said last week, it's kind of like a faith troubleshooting manual. It's a way for us to check our faith. It's a practical teaching for an actual group of real people, not unlike this group here. So with that background, we, we, can, we can look at our group here, and we can remember that we're sharing time and space with, with fellow believers. And some of us are... Some of us are strong in the faith. Others of us, we've got weak faith, or it's new faith, or it's as small as a mustard seed. Like, we're all in these different places in our lives, including our walk in sanctification. And so if you look at a new believer, you're not going to see the same kind of a life as, like, somebody who's been walking with the Lord for 50 years. It's just not going to look the same. So we, James has been helpful in walking us through what, weak or dead faith looks like so that we can know, so that we can know these things. And then on the opposite end, he tells us what complete faith or strong faith looks like. And he's giving us these things that we can we can go down the list and be like, taming the tongue. How is that? What does that say about my faith? How am I in controlling the words I speak? And um, this week, it's these internal evil, like these desires that we have, the, these passions in us, that are fleshly, that cause strife and cause fighting. So that's where we're at. So the apparent problem, so if we, if we read um, verse 1, the apparent problem here is they're, they're a similar group of people as us, right? They're all in different places in their faith, and they have varying degrees of sanctification or holiness among them, varying degrees of sanctification. And this is the audience to keep in mind because it's, it's like us. Um, as we read verses 1 to 4. So verse 1 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So the fights among you are caused by passions that are at war within us. So churches are made of people, right? We have, we have sin, and a common sin for a group of people is infighting. Now, it's not a sin here that I know of. You guys are all doing a really good job. Keep up the good work. So then, don't take this and go, oh, man, is he is he talking to us? Like, you know, we're going to be faithful and go through James as the Lord directs. He, he's got something in here for each one of our hearts, right? The word goes into our hearts in this way. But as a, as a whole, I can say that's not vine and branch. That's not this group of believers. Um, and it's not about fights with people outside because um, conflict the church is going to come in conflict with the world. That's inevitable, right? Because we have a king, and the world has a king, and those kings are not the same king. So that, that conflict is inevitable, but in the church, so it shouldn't. we shouldn't have these, this, this sort of infighting that he's describing. And he answers the rhetorical question, why, right away. He says, the strife which has no place in the life of faith is caused by sinful passions at war. Sinful passions at war, like 
in us, inside of believers. And we spoke about these passions last week. He warned us at the end of chapter 3 that this bitter, it's like bitter jealousy and selfish ambition was a sign of having this worldly wisdom. And we learned that the speech that we have like flows out of this, the wisdom that we have. And so if we have these selfish desires, it could burn the house down. Remember last week he used the word fire like a thousand times? It's all, it's like speech could burn your life to the ground. And it is caused by these things inside of us, these worldly desires. Uh, verse 2 says, you desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, I read that and I go, these people were in a little bit of a mess. Um, they don't have, they, they want, they're asking. Some people aren't asking enough. Some people are asking wrongly. It's like a, it's like a big, it's a big deal. He's using, and he uses this inflammatory kind of a speech. We desire and we lack, so we murder. Is, can, can you guys picture the early church murdering each other? That's, that's like, that's a big deal. So I looked, <laughs> I looked this up. Um, some commentaries, Say, well, he was, James has this, like we learned in the last chapter, he's, he uses these kinds, this kind of strong language to like get you re- to really understand the severity of things. And he's, it's like a rhetorical tool. Um, but it's like, it's like hyperbolic effect. And so he does kind of have that style. It's over the top. But it's also likely that he's referring to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5. If you guys remember, Jesus compares anger and insults, which he said you'll be judged for. If you even hate your brother, you'll be judged for that, like if you murdered him. And it's, it's, it's probably likely that he's referring to that. That's what I believe. So they had these desires, and in some cases they're not asking, which I think we can learn a lesson from that. We should be asking the Lord for things we want. Obviously, over time, as we're sanctified, as we grow in the faith, our will is going to be, become more in line with God's will. And the things we ask, he will do because it's what he wants to do. God is all-powerful. He's completely supreme. So his will is going to be what's done, period. And if you ask God to do something that's against his will, he's not going to do it. But over time, that's going to happen because my will becomes aligned with his as I'm sanctified and made more and more in his image over time. And then you've got these other people who are asking for things for the wrong reasons. Now, <clears throat> the the wrong reasons is anything earthly. It's I want I want a new Ferrari. You know, it's like it's not going to do very good on Bear Creek Road, but I still like the car and I think I look really good in it driving the thing around. So that's the wrong reason obviously because it's selfish, right? It's all about self self self. I want a new house. I think your dress is great. Uh, I would like to have that dress or whatever, pants. Um, yeah. You know, I, it's like I want things, but I want things to, to serve, to make myself look better and to serve kind of some kind of a selfish, des, selfish desire. Those, that was happening too in this, in this church that James is writing to. Um, so sinful motives is, it's just not going to work. We're not going to get what we want from the Lord. And it's a good thing because we have all had children ask for things that aren't, I mean, the, the parents in this room, it's just like, no, I'm not going to give you that because I love you. 
because I don't want you to hurt yourself or because I know it's you just want to like lord it over your siblings or something. Um, so he, he goes through this. This is, this is like the quandary that these, these poor folks were in. And so thankfully, I don't see that here. Keep up the good work, right? It's like, it's, it's a wonderful thing to be in this church. And we talked about that last week when we talked about the topic of speech. We don't, we don't seem to have that problem. Praise God. It's only because of His grace. Um, so keep on, keep on doing a, a good work there. But the real problem, he's getting to this real problem. The main point of this is coming. And it gets to the point of our very existence. Why do we even exist? We're made for the sole purpose of glorifying God and remain, and being in a relationship with him to glorify him and enjoy him forever. That's why we occupy space and time. right? That's why we exist. Any amount of friendship with the world, he's saying, is being God's enemy. If you're a friend of the world, you're, you're God's enemy. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, is being an enemy with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So here we get to the meat of the problem. So this infighting and strife, it's not the real problem. It's the it's the apparent problem. It stems from not having, otherwise discontentment, right? And it's made worse by these people asking or not asking in incorrect ways and all that. But it stems from a deep down friendship with the world. Friendship with the world. It reminds me of the worldly wisdom that he talked about in the last part of chapter three, right? we were warned that God rescued us out of the world, and following the world, it would logically come to mean that we're enemies with God, right? If If we are saved into Christ's family, he is our king. I can't keep following this other king. I have no choice because I have one king, and it's Jesus. God is jealous, and he's not willing to share his spirit, which he has so freely placed inside of us. Exodus 34 says, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. So God says this about himself in the Bible. He says, My name is Jealous, and I'm jealous. My name is Jealous, and I'm jealous. So don't go after the world. I want you to be with me. He hates infidelity. Friendship with the world and friendship with God is mutually exclusive. You can't have both at the same time. In verse 4, he says that friendship the world makes a believer an adulterer. This is more of this, this fiery language from James. This is a whole level up from being an enemy because adultery adds a layer of betrayal that was once a good relationship or supposed to have been a good relationship. God loves his church with a, rentless, uh, with a relentless and irresistible zeal. God loves his church. He won't have rivals and he won't compete. He won't compete with anybody for his affection. One of the reformers wrote, God very commonly takes on the character of a husband to us. Indeed, the union by which he binds us to himself when he receives us into the bosom of his church is like a sacred wedlock. It's like marriage, which must rest upon mutual faithfulness. 
as he performs all the duties of a true and faithful husband, of us in return he demands love and chastity. That is, we are not to yield our souls to Satan, to lust, and to filthy desires of the flesh, or to be defiled by them. He's talking about friendship with the world. The more holy and chaste a husband is, the more wrathful he becomes if he sees his wife inclining her heart to a rival. In like manner, the Lord who has wedded us to himself in truth manifests the most burning jealousy wherever we, whenever we, neglecting the, pure, the purity of his holy marriage, become polluted with wicked lust, with a friendship of the world. In Isaiah 62, 5, to back that up, says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. God takes this relationship seriously between us and him, and he doesn't, he doesn't, he demands us to be faithful. So that's the real problem, right? So we've got this, this, this apparent problem, and then we've got the real problem, infidelity to God, friendship with the world. And this is James' thing. He's saying, if, if you have a, if, if you have a life of faith, it has no place for the world. Faith in us is in Christ. It's not just mysterious faith. It's faith in Christ, and we can't be friends with the world. So what's the solution, right? There's got to be a solution. Um, that the underlying issue is friendship with the world. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. What an inc- That's incredible, right? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So here comes the good news. And I'm, I'm happy for the second time to say that all is not lost. Why? Because God gives more grace. God gives more grace than there is infidelity. His grace is bigger than that. So, if we're an unfaithful Christian, which most of us are to some degree, then it should be a relief to hear this. God doesn't do divorce. It's not, it's not in him. He's a life bringer, and he builds and he grows relationships. He doesn't do divorce. We're his bride. The church is the bride of Christ, and that's the end of the story. There's no other bride. There's no put, you know, well, you guys blew it, so where's my, where's my next church, right? The global church is the bride of Christ. He gives more grace from verse 6. Therefore, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And since he gives grace to those who are humble, we do have a part in this. Our part in this is, is to be humble. It's not rocket science, right? Our part in this is to be humble. One grace, then humble yourself before the living God and watch him go to work on the sinful desires in your heart. He will change you. It says, submit yourselves in humility to God. He's the only source of our salvation. He's the only source of our righteousness. And he wants to be in that relationship with us. And so having submitted to God... We can then and only then resist the devil with a, with a positive effect after having humbled ourselves to God. Resistance to the devil 
could, could work. It could be a thing. Not before, after. You can't resist the devil and not have submitted to God. The submission part of this in humility is too important to skip over. It is only by God and from God that the power of the evil one can, can be thwarted. So you can't just resist what is evil, right? You have, to, you have to replace it with something. You have to replace it with what's holy, the relationship with the Lord. Verse 8 says, draw near to God, and as a result, he will draw near to you. There's, there's a whole sermon right there. And I'm, I hate to fly over this too quickly. Uh, we're looking at a model of repentance in these last couple of verses. It's a model for repentance. Humility before God and drawing near to him and resisting the devil, right? And then it says, cleanse your hands and purify your heart of sin. Put aside double-mindedness, which is faithlessness, as we learned back in chapter 1. And it gets more real in verse 9. Uh, true repentance will produce a godly sorrow, like a total actual sorrow, complete with gloom. It uses the word gloom in the ESV. But there is a light at the end of this process. This humility before God and repentance will result in him, it says, exalting us. That's like, that's lifting us up. And so, if you're a parent in this room, you'll understand this. And let's say you have a truly repentant child, right? Who's, who, whatever they did, whatever, whatever it was, they, they fully understand that it was wrong, it became real to them, and in that moment they understand all the effects and that it was evil and it caused damage with your relationship and, and your ability to trust them. And so after you deal with that, after you receive the repentance, you forgive them, and then what do you do? You lift them up. Or if they're hanging their head, you, you lift up their chin and you look them in the face and you say, we're done. We're done. That's, that's in the past. That's in the past. What's next? We're, we're moving forward. That's how, Any parent knows what I'm saying. You wipe away their tears. And God says he, after repentance, he will exalt us. He will lift us back up. And he restores that relationship. He is always good and can always be trusted to do that. Um, so that, my friends, is the answer to a corrupt, to a relationship with the world. Humble yourselves and repent, and he will lift you up. He fixes it. It's not in us to do it. My humility isn't fixing it. It's God that fixes it. But he gives grace to the humble. It's pretty clear about that. So, um, having laid out the answer, right? So we've got the root problem. We've got the answer. Um, friend, how to return to friendship with God. James moves on. He says in verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Is that word brothers again? The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and one judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So we're getting into some... This uh, sounds familiar, right? In chapter 2, we talked about we should act as Christians. We should act as people who are judged under the law of liberty. You guys remember that? We should, we should refrain from casting evil judgment onto, the, onto other people. It was, 
it was by being partial. Remember the story of the rich uh, of the hypothetical scenario of the rich guy coming in the door, and you're like, "Hey, have this nice seat." The poor guy, and you're like, "Sit in the back. I don't want to smell you." You know, like that's an evil judgment, right? That's that's kind of what was. And so now we're back to this. We're back to this. He says, "Do not speak evil against one another." It's 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 the solution to avoiding this whole mess in the first place, right? These guys were speaking evil and infighting. Uh, back in verse one. So we should refuse. We should refuse to participate in speaking evil against each other. Um, back to the back to the speech chapter. You can burn down the house by speaking evil against one of one of your brothers or one of your sisters. Um, and if we do it, we're committing a sin against God. He says you can't with one side of your mouth praise praise God. God, you're great. I love you. And with the other side, be like, man, this guy's a real turd. You know, you, you just can't do that. And it says, because he's made in the image of God. When you do that, it's a sin. Refuse to speak evil against another. Um, it's, uh, this, to do this, it, it shows that our faith is weak, right? This is, this is a book about faith. And so this is one of the things I can check on. Am I speaking evil against my brothers or my sisters? It's the, it's the faith uh, checkup manual. Um, so, judging God's law. This is an interesting phrase. Any, any, what, what is this about? And so, the one, uh, the one who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are a doer. You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. So instead of being a doer, we become a judge of it because we're we're saying, hey, this ain't good enough. I'm going to ignore this. I don't need to pay attention to this. I, it's, it's, here's God's law, right? Which is the, the way to live a perfect life, which no one can actually do. And it's saying, I'm going to be up here. I'm, I'm going to put this down into a place that uh, is not intended to be. We are not to be the law. He's saying we can't be the judges of the law. God creates the law, and he's the only one that can judge. He's the law giver. He's the law maker. He's the creator. It's fully his domain. And by judging our brothers, we're speaking evil against each other. We're judging the law. So he he's taken something that's that's possibly quite possibly we've all done right. We've all said bad things about each other. He's saying no. It's more than just that. He's saying you're judging God's law now. Now we're now we're to something new, right? I can't just say something bad about my friend because I think he looks dumb and. You know, he stinks or something or whatever it is. I don't like his truck, you know. But no, you're judging God's law. I don't, you don't want to evilly judge a person because they're made in the image of God and you're judging God's law. It's it's a big deal. The law is fully in God's domain and we want to be in friend, friendship with God and his law, not friendship with the world. So some of you might remember the most famously misused verse in the whole Bible. Judge not, lest you be judged. <laughs> some of you are smiling because you know I was going to say that. It's from Matthew 7.1. So just as intended in that verse, in that verse, in Matthew, James is not forbidding all judgment. We can't look at this and go, oh, no, I just can't make any judgments at all. That's not what he's saying. We know that believers, you have to make judgments at t- judgment at times um, because you're always presented with choices 
And things that you'll hear or whatever, you have to make judgments. Is that from the Lord or is that not? Well, that's a judgment. That's a simple judgment. I'm going to go do this thing with these people. Like, is that a sin or is that not a sin? Or are these people following the Lord or not? I have to make that judgment. He's not saying don't make any judgments. Um, One example is the elders of a church have to make judgments based upon somebody's repentance, based on a sin that they might be in, in order to protect the body of Christ. And so in this case here in James, the context is evil judgments based on selfish desires and, and kind of a faithless, worldly wisdom. We can't do that. Any judgments we do make have to be made have to be based in the love for Christ and his body. Because aside from the grace of God, there go I, right? You guys heard that phrase? If he's, if he's stumbling, I can't judge him in a way that's harmful because I know that I have been forgiven of way worse. God forgave me of complete infidelity and enmity with him. And so I, I'm going to, that's going to change that relationship. Um, any judgments we make must be based in love. And it must be based in love for Jesus and his body, of which we are a part. So, to keep this faith troubleshooting manual at hand, and check yourself if you're judging God's law, if you're speaking evil about your brothers. So we're, we're in the church are called to live and act as those who are judged under the royal law, if you guys remember that from chapter 2. And that is the law of liberty. It's the wonderful law of Christ. King Jesus himself, he made it clear that we have to love God and love love each other. And by doing those things, you'll fulfill the whole law. That's the law that we live under. You shall love your neighbor as yourself is what boils it down to, what that boils down to. So to wrap this up, let's keep our hearts true to the Lord. He's the savior of our souls. Let's put aside friendship with the world. It, it not only has a, a negative effect and can cause infighting, but it's infidelity. It's infidelity to God, who in his great mercy called us to himself into relationship. He saved us from unrighteousness and eternal punishment that we, frankly, deserve. And so twice James reminded us today that God gives grace to the humble And we do need his grace. And so we have to humble ourselves before him. And so I'm going to pray. Listen to my words as I pray. And pray with me in your heads. Dear Father, Holy God, we thank you for your gift of faith. By which I can believe in the saving work of your son Jesus. And Lord, as I walk through life this week, increase my humility under you, under your rule. And Lord, strengthen my faith in you. Forgive me where I have made friendship with the world, where I have become friends with what is not right and for any sin I might have committed against another person. Lord, if there be selfish desires in me, please grant me repentance. If I've been wronged by someone else, Help me to forgive them as you so graciously forgiven me of my many sins. Please grant me the desire to love and follow your perfect law of liberty. 
and not to wrongly become a judge over something so perfect that you have created. Help me to grow and love your word. Lord, I thank you for this body in which we belong. Help us to love one another truly and deeply in this room as you first loved us. Please keep us safe.